Chapter 7 King David, another great figure in the kingdom story. About a thousand years after Abraham, there occurred another major framework event in God's unfolding immortality kingdom program. It was God's selection of a king from among eight sons of a Jew, Jesse. God selected his youngest son, David, the one with a ruddy complexion and beautiful eyes. He was, his brothers thought, the least suitable candidate for royal office as king of Israel. But God looks on the heart, the Bible reminds us, and not on outward appearance. God was in search of someone whose loyalty to the great kingdom program would be fixed and firm. This does not mean that David did not make some serious mistakes in the course of his journey of faith, but genuine repentance brought him back on track. He was deeply broken over his sin, and he died after a long life, as did Abraham, believing in God's kingdom plan, without having seen the fulfillment of the great promise of the kingdom to come. First, the selection of King David. We have here a picture not only of David, but in principle, all Christians who align themselves with the messianic program to be realized in Christ, who is the blood descendant or seed of David, according to Matthew 1 verse 1. Christians are said to be anointed in the New Testament because they have received the Holy Spirit of God as an anointing. That spirit is in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is the operational presence and power of God. It is God and Jesus, since New Testament times, in personal outreach to us. The Spirit is also the mind of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16. The Spirit is a foretaste of the immortality to be granted to believers when Jesus comes back. For the present, the Christians, those who obey Jesus, according to Acts 5 verse 32 and Hebrews 5 9, receive the Spirit as an anointing in advance of the future kingdom. The Spirit is received by believing the gospel, Galatians 3 and verse 2. The evidence of the Spirit is shown by an understanding of the gospel and truth. To teach that the real evidence of the Spirit is, quote, speaking in tongues, is a catastrophic departure from the Bible. Christians are said to be, quote, born of the Spirit, John 3 verse 5, or born of the Word, the Gospel, 1 Peter 1 verse 23, James 1.18, Galatians 4, verse 28 and 29. I love this story of the selection of David to royal office. We watch the work of God in the choice of this celebrated ancestor of Jesus, David, the famous psalmist and king. Let the Bible itself tell the story. I quote, Finally the Lord said to Samuel, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. Now fill your horn with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, 
for I have selected one of his sons to be my new king. But Samuel asked, How can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed him. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the leaders of the town became afraid. What's wrong? they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them also. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't make decisions the way you do. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at a person's thoughts and intentions. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next Jesse summoned Shammah. But Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was ruddy and handsome, with pleasant eyes. And the Lord said, This is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the olive oil he had brought and poured it on David's head. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. You read that quotation in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. The background to this royal appointment of David is of the greatest importance. Abraham, you will remember, had been promised the seed and the soil, a descendant and a land or kingdom which he would inherit permanently. The promises to Abraham consisted of a geographical place and a prince to go with it. Abraham was guaranteed, subject to his proper response of obedience and faith, progeny, prosperity, and property. With the land promise now firmly established under the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, God decided to provide a king, a royal household beginning with David. You cannot have a land without a prince or a king to supervise it. David was anointed as king and was thus a Messiah, an anointed one. But God promised him a descendant who would be the ultimate promised seed, Jesus, the Messiah, God's unique son. It is surprising that in countries calling themselves Christian, 
the true Christian story or history is not faithfully taught in schools. Our real history and roots are not to be found in the country in which we happen to have been born, but in our spiritual biblical heritage. Americans often speak of their so-called Judeo-Christian heritage, but they say nothing about the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants which form the backbone of God's dealing with believers. Christians are firstly members of the royal household of Judah, speak of rebirth, being born again into the royal family of King Jesus. Our relationships are not firstly with our physical relatives or the country of our birth, but with the international relatives of Jesus. Jesus made this marvelous observation. I quote, Who are my mother and father and brothers and sisters? Those who hear the word of God, that is the gospel of the kingdom, and do it. See Luke 8 verse 21. Hearing the word of God is defined as, quote, doing the will of God. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. As we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, compared with Matthew 12, verse 50. Don't miss this important point. Hearing the gospel as Jesus preached it and doing the will of God are intimately related. This is a key to understanding the Christian faith. Jesus redefines the family as an international brotherhood of believers in and disciples of the Messiah. He intended his international church to be a mini picture of the future kingdom of God. The church would be noted for its love and compassion one for another, John 13 verse 35. At present, however, the ideal of love amongst believers has not been lived up to. The identifying badge, so to speak, of Christians has been lost. International wars have occurred in which believers have killed each other in support of their countries of origin. Would Jesus have taken the lives of others in international wars? Or was he an ambassador for a foreign kingdom modeling that status for his followers also. David was disqualified from building the temple because he had shed blood. You'll find that in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3. Paul was very distressed about the large-scale rejection of Jesus by his natural kith and kin, the Jews. He made it very clear that God had not given them all up permanently. But while they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, they were, quote, enemies of the gospel and needed to be grafted back into their own olive tree. See Romans chapter 11. Paul, of course, acknowledged that Jews of his day, quote, had a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Romans 10 verse 2. This is a peril for all of us. Paul said they were doing religion on their own terms, but were not willing to submit to the terms of the new covenant inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, the great kingdom covenant. See Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. 
Luke 22, 28-30, reports Jesus as, quote, covenanting the kingdom to his followers. So the kingdom is the heart of the gospel and thus of the new covenant. Paul's Jewish compatriots were not without enthusiasm for God and religion, but they had not accepted the only religion which ultimately counts, faith in Jesus as the Messiah, who has already come and is coming again, who came with the saving gospel message about the kingdom. This truth about Christian identity is found in the model believer Abraham as much as it's found in the life and example of David. Abraham was an advanced believer in Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom of God. He is thus rightly entitled to be called the father of the New Testament faithful in Romans 4 verse 16. In the same verse, Christian faith is called, quote, the faith of Abraham. Paul noted that the gospel had been preached in advance to Abraham, Galatians 3 verse 8. Abraham knew about the kingdom and about Jesus and looked forward excitedly to the birth of Jesus and the later coming of the kingdom at the return of Jesus. As we go on to see how God made a royal covenant with David, we must remind ourselves of the model and example of David's ancestor, Abraham. Abraham, like all followers of Jesus, was asked to break ties with all that was closest and dearest. He was asked to obey God by leaving his native country and his father and mother and relatives. He was then to proceed to the land of the promise, the promised land. He lived there in that promised land as a resident alien, a sort of green card person. He was a foreigner, in fact, in the land which actually belonged to him by promise, but he did not yet own it because Jesus the Messiah, the seed of Abraham, had not yet been born. Please consult the important information in Hebrews. I quote, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. You'll find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 to 9. The royal element in the promise to Abraham was given a richer meaning by the appearance of King David. God's wonderful binding agreement with David, his covenant with David, is described so delightfully in the words of the Bible that I want you to hear it straight from Scripture. Here is the famous encounter of the prophet Nathan with King David. You will easily understand how the great immortality program is advanced by this next stage in the unfolding activity of God in history. This is not only David's story, it is yours if you are beginning to take seriously the aims and claims of Jesus, if you want to be part of the great immortality program.
We take up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I quote, When the Lord had brought peace to the land, and King David was settled in his palace, David summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, here I am living in this beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out in a tent. Nathan replied, Go ahead and do what you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a temple to live in? I've never lived in a temple from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until now. My home has always been a tent, moving from one place to another. And I've never once complained to Israel's leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar temple? Now go and say to my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I chose you to lead my people Israel when you were just a shepherd boy, tending your sheep out in the pasture. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies. Now I will make your name famous throughout the earth. I have provided a permanent homeland for my people Israel, a secure place where they will never be disturbed. It will be their own land where wicked nations won't oppress them as they did in the past from the time I appointed judges to rule my people. And I will keep you safe from all your enemies. And now the Lord declares that he will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple, for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him. But my unfailing love will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time before me, and your throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said. You'll find all this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. David's reaction to these wonderful promises about his own future and that of his descendants and of the world follows. David knew that the arrival of Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant God was making with him. There was only a partial fulfillment in the life of Solomon, David's son. The covenant with David would be the center of God's great charter for mankind, resulting in peace and prosperity for all nations obedient to Jesus. David understood the vast importance of God's gracious dealings with him and his family. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me 
this far. And now, Sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving me a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O Sovereign Lord? This phrase probably means rather, and this is the charter for human history. For a fuller account of the Davidic covenant, please see my book, Our Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven, The Forgotten Christianity of Jesus the Jew, especially chapter 6. David then went on, speaking to God. What more can I say? You know what I'm really like, Sovereign Lord. For the sake of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and you have shown them to me. How great you are, O Sovereign Lord! There is no one like you. There is no other God. We have never even heard of another God like you. Note that David's creed was just like Jesus, belief in one person, the Father, as God. Certainly not two or three. David went on, What other nation on earth is like Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You've made a great name for yourself when you rescued your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles, and you drove out the nations and gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever, so that all the world will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And may the dynasty of your servant David be established in your presence. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer because you have revealed that you will build a house for me, an eternal dynasty. For you are God, O Sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to me, your servant. And now may it please you to bless me and my family so that our dynasty may continue forever before you. For when you grant a blessing to your servants, O Sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. End of quotation from Second Samuel 7, verses 18 to 29. With this marvelous revelation of God to David, the kingdom drama of the Bible became even clearer. All the pieces of the unfolding plan came together. There remained only the arrival of Jesus the Messiah coming into existence as the Son of God in Mary, by supernatural generation, as it says in Luke 1, verse 35. David fell asleep in death, not having received the promises, Acts 13, verse 36, but writing in many of his Psalms, see particularly Psalms 2, 21, and Psalms 96 to 100, where, quote, the Lord reigns, is a prophecy of the future kingdom when the Lord Jesus will begin to reign. See also Psalm 72 and Psalm 
89. So David, writing in these many psalms, shared his understanding of the future of the world. David, as he wrote, eventually slept the sleep of death. Psalm 13, verse 3. He knew that in the grave, quote, no one thanks God or praises him. As you read in Psalm 6, verse 5, and Psalm 115, verse 17. But he died full of hope and faith in the future Messiah and the kingdom. Your hope can be that of David, expressed so beautifully. I quote now, These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, the man to whom God gave such wonderful success. David, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, The person who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning, like the sunrise bursting forth in a cloudless sky, like the refreshing rains that bring tender grass from the earth. It is my family God has chosen. Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is eternal, final, sealed. He will constantly look after my safety and success. And a quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 5. The New Testament makes it clear that the prophecy of Nathan about David's future son did not reach its climax in Solomon, who failed dismally as king. The prophecy had its true, final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The New Testament applies the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 about David's descendant to Jesus as the Messiah. I will be his father and he will be my son. God had promised to David those very words. It quotes the words of the Davidic covenant and applies them to Jesus. It also proves the same point by quoting Psalm 2 verse 7 about the coming into existence, the begetting of the Son. And so, some 2,000 years ago, the Messiah Jesus was begotten by God in the womb of Mary. Luke 1 verse 35. And note especially Matthew 1 verse 20, where the Greek reads, quote, that which is begotten or fathered in you is from Holy Spirit. Matthew has described in detail the genesis or genesis of Jesus, of Messiah Jesus, that is, in Matthew 1 verse 18. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David, Matthew 1 verse 1. That important word, Genesis, or Genesis, reminds us that the Son of God had a definite beginning of existence. It would be quite false to say that he has always existed. Someone older than David could not be David's descendant. 
Truly the coming into existence of the Son of God was a stupendous miracle. No other person was born from a woman without the cooperation of a human father. Had you asked Jesus about his father, he would have replied, God is my father. This makes Jesus absolutely unique in a class of his own. He was not, quote, just a good man, nor was he selected to be God's son sometime during his career. He was created in Mary as son of God. No human being is his equal, and there is no savior except him. He is the perfect model of what it means for a human being to be in intimate relation with the Father, the Creator. God desires to be intimately related to his creatures, and he was supremely active in the life of the perfect creature, Jesus. Satan tries to make nonsense out of Jesus' status as Son of God by saying that a human being could not claim what Jesus claimed or do what Jesus did. But this is to deny God his perfect right to produce a human person of infinite dignity and value and worthy of the homage paid to him as Messiah, not God. The New Testament word for the worship of God alone is never applied to Jesus, not once. That's to say there's no instance of the Greek verb latrevin, which means to worship as God, which has Christ as object. you read that in Arthur Wainwright's The Trinity in the New Testament. Jesus was intensely and passionately interested in God's great covenants with Abraham and David, his ancestors. No wonder that Jesus worked tirelessly at the task of announcing the gospel of the kingdom, Luke 4, verse 43, which was nothing less than the good news about God's great plan in fulfillment of his covenants with Abraham, David, and of course with Jesus himself as the centerpiece of the whole marvelous biblical drama.